forever. Dog. Just between us. I'm a writer, mental health advocate, and I like to read before bed. Hey, I'm Gabe Dunn. I'm a writer, bi-con, bisexual icon, wink, and where the hell you been, Loka? What? It's from Twilight. I don't know. I just was looking at the memes that I have saved on my phone, and that was one of them. Why do you have memes saved on your phone? Oh, to use in any emergency situation. I just figured out that if I favorite a TikTok, I can find it again. Because all the time I'll see a TikTok and I'll be like, this is really good. I have no one worth sending this to uh, who will get it because it's really for me. But I don't know how I'll ever find it again. I do want to commend you on you did a TikTok where it was uh, you talking to you. I've done that for years. I know. So but that one, it hit. I don't know. It hit for me. Thank you. Yeah, I've done those over the years. Yeah, I like that. Thank you. It's so interesting what will do well on TikTok and then not do well on Instagram. And vice versa. Yeah. This is Just Between Us, a variety show filled with heartfelt advice. Ridiculous games. And brutal honesty. But like, basically, we could do any merch you guys want. So if you have ideas, please write in. People want the prenup mugs back. Okay. We've got a great episode for everyone today. I'm turning us into a business. Okay, but you're talking about it too much. No, I don't think so. Okay, write in. Let us know. Is Gabe constantly talking about merch too much? What you should do is you should buy something and then fill out the customer complaint. Okay, for- let people know what's who's in this episode. Okay, this week we are interviewing an amazing guest, Rainsford Stauffer, all about ambition. And um, Allison and Rainsford have a lot in common. <laughs> Uh, it's OCD. And later, <laughs> we're going to be talking about parasocial relationships because maybe we've done this topic before, but there's been some stuff going on that I feel like we got to address. I mean, we were going to talk about one thing and then a whole other thing happened. And now I'm yeah. so I'm so I shouldn't be delighted by other people's <laughs> pain. But wow. But you really are. I want to talk Shrewd about it. Shrewd and Freud. Shrewd and Freud. I know. Okay, but first, we have got to answer a listener's question. And you know what that means. Hit it! International question. International question. International question. Unknown. Not known. Whoa. So unknown in the name and not known in the location. Pretty cool. Wow. It must be a spicy question. Well, or some people just forget. I'm not sure. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. TLDR. How do we contend with the fact that we're compatible now, but could grow in separate directions? Oh, that is spicy. I, 21-year-old, she, they, and partnered with Simon, 22-year-old, he, they. Oh. Simon is everything I could ever imagine. What what kind of reactions were you having? Um, they're quite young, so I already know my advice is going to be breakup. Oh, okay, <laughs> okay. But, but keep going. Simon is everything I could ever imagine for a partner. Uh-huh. They're smart and funny and sweet and gentle and very attractive. Mm-hmm. We've been dating for four years and have seen each other through a lot: the pandemic, losses, mental and physical illness, and the highs and lows of college. Mm. We've really grown together. We've been long distance the whole time, Mm. which has been challenging, but ultimately makes us stronger. We love each other so, so much. However, I am polyamorous and Simon is not. Goodbye. Being monogamous is possible for me, but it's definitely not my preference. Mm -mm. Simon, on the other hand, would prefer to be monogamous, but is willing to be in an open relationship. No. 
Being open allows us both to have flirtations and physical relationships with other people. I would be happy if the relationship was even more open, but that is not something with which Simon is comfortable. Uh Uh-oh. So we both compromise to keep our relationship. Simon and I are both worried that at some point this could become a point of tension, resentment, or incompatibility. Mm -hmm. Simon would be happy marrying me now and never sleeping with anyone ever again. I initially thought my polyamory was a phase, but I'm beginning to think it's a forever part of my identity. I'm still so young, so I don't know. I do know that I absolutely adore Simon and would do anything for them. We really don't want to break up. How do you contend with the fact that we're compatible now, but could grow in separate directions? JBU means so much to me. Endless love to all three of you. Okay, I love you so much, listener. I love you so much. And that's why I'm going to tell you the truth. (laughs) (laughs) You've been with this person since you were a teenager. You're 21, 20, 21, 21. baby. Mm, I I don't, it's funny that you're like, we're compatible. It's not funny. You're compatible now, but you could grow to be incompatible in the future. I would argue you're incompatible now because you love each other so much. And I get that. And that's beautiful. And you know what? We're probably going to get emails from people who are like, I met my husband at 14 and like, good for you. But generally, when the, the monogamy and the polyamory thing pops up, it's not great. And bef- even before that, when you were saying that, You've been together this long. You're very young. And this person would be happy marrying you tomorrow and never sleeping with anyone else, which, by the way, could change again because you're super young. My boyfriend thought he was monogamous and then realized he wasn't. But before, way before we were together, by the way. By I was the like, time, what? No, 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 no. <laughs> by the time we got together, we were both poly. But I, I think that it might behoove you both to break up amicably at this point. So amicably, because it, it could get to a place where it's not your we're compatible now and we're going to get incompatible. It's your amicable now and it could become real, real rough. Mm. So I would argue break up now where you still love each other. Everyone's in a good place. Gr- have your growths separately. You both need to grow. You both are very young. You need to experience growth and Simon might grow. And be like, wow, you know what? I've realized that I am Polly, or you know, wow, I've I've realized that these things about myself. And then you, you know, change, or you grow, and you, and and then maybe everyone grows, and you come back together. Wow, beautiful, amazing. What a twist! But it can happen. Hello, J Lo, Ben Affleck. But I think that you're seeing it as that you are compatible now and you're going to grow incompatible. And I would argue that you you are currently incompatible. And that doesn't mean you don't love each other. And that doesn't mean things of the relationship don't work. And that doesn't mean that there aren't aspects that are really great. But you are currently incompatible. I also would love to recommend you the song Forever by Fletcher, um, because I think that will really give you some clarity. What's it about? I think I could love you forever as long as forever doesn't start right now. Oh, yeah, that's beautiful. Yeah, I mean, it's hard, right? Because like it's that classic thing of like how much does the present matter versus the future? How much should I focus on the now versus like what I want for myself long term? But I think that like what Gabe was alluding to right now seems like an opportunity for you to kind of be able to answer a lot of questions for yourself by by taking time apart mm-hmm. um, and by experiencing what it would be like to, you know, not 
be in a romantic relationship with each other anymore. Mm -hmm. Um, And I get that that's so scary. I mean, like, especially if you've been together since doing some quick math, you're 17. Right. Like, it's like, what, who am I without this person? And I think looking at that as an opportunity for exploration and as like, this is the time to do that Mm -hmm. rather like than post-college, mid-20s, mm-hmm. like to break up mid-20s when you probably would maybe have like moved in together because mm-hmm. finally you're in the same place, you know, like now is a time where you can really allow yourself that exploration. And I think again, like a thing I I really like to remind people is, is that like we're compatible with so many people. Mm-hmm. And so like all the things that you really love about your current relationship and about Simon exist in other people and maybe those people are also poly mm-hmm. or like, you know, it's not going to be exactly the same. But I, I think like this idea that like I won't ever find someone as great again. Like mm-hmm. it's just not true. There's so many wonderful people out there. And like you have yet to meet so many people who you might end up just really being more fundamentally compatible with. And Simon could sounds like a great friend. Yeah. I mean, that's what I'm worried about. I'm worried. It's like, let's take a break. And then everything stays exactly the same. No, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, I mean, a great friend in the future. Yeah. A great friend in the right. future. Like, I think you would probably maybe need to take some time not talking totally. as much, especially because it is long distance. So it would be so easy to technically be broken up, but mm-hmm, for everything to be mm-hmm. the same minus maybe some sexting. But it's not like you're in person right. anyway. Right. But yeah, like really, really allowing that time. And then look, like Gabe said, like, Maybe at the end of the day, like Simon will be more open to Polly or you'll realize that like at at 25 that you would rather be with Simon than not. Yeah. And and you just don't know. But it, it, it seems silly not to at least explore that right now, because I think the longer you wait to explore it, the harder it will be in, in a lot of different ways, both in that like you don't have experience as an adult without mm-hmm, without mm-hmm, them. Mm-hmm. And also that like your lives will probably be more intertwined. They'll have been like more of like of the sunk cost fallacy. Mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. I think now is a really great time to to do this experiment. Um, if you're if you're asking these questions at all. So when I was 21 to 23 or that was like around when I was dating Gondelman. Mm-hmm. And I had this idea of myself that I I wanted to be good enough for him. And being good enough for him meant being monogamous because I had this idea of myself as if I was Polly, I was like dirty and wrong Mm. and that I was throwing away something amazing because I was I couldn't be good enough for this person. And ultimately, it's just that we were not compatible and me not being monogamous for him was not like I have failed and I'm a bad person. And I'm like, I really went through that spiral hugely. Because I was like, he's so good and I'm so bad. He's so good because he would marry me tomorrow. And I'm so bad because I want to sleep with other people or whatever. And like, there's, you got to come from it. It's like a neutral. If I could give you any advice, like other than break up, uh, it's like a neutral, you know, like there's no uh, one is good, one is bad scenario. And, you know, and then the beautiful thing is years later, he and I are like super close. And we're like able to be really good friends. And And have found partners that work better for each of you romantically. Absolutely. I mean, him and his wife are are perfect together. And like, that's who I would want, you know, love for him to like, that's who he should be with. You know what I mean? And so like, I think he was trying to to be a way for me and I was trying to be a way for him. 
and we both were going through like a, a why aren't I this way for this person? Mm-hmm. And then I beat myself up for a long time thinking I let something really great go because I'm a bad person because I equated non-monogamy with being a bad person or being a flaw. Those two things aren't, they don't go together. You right. know what I mean? It's not like, oh, I let this amazing thing go because I'm a bad person. It's just incompatible. It's just, it's just you're incompatible. And then either you come back and you, you can get back together or you can, or you come back together eventually. And like you're the things that were super compatible about you make you really great friends. I love that. Well, hopefully that was helpful. If you want to submit an international question, you can send an email to justbetweenuspod at gmail.com. That's just between us, P-O-D at gmail.com. Up next, we've got an exciting interview with our highly esteemed guest, Rainsford Stauffer. So stay tuned. Just between us. Welcome back to Just Between Us. It's time for the juiciest, most scandalous, most controversial segment known to all of podcasting. Tough questions. This week on the show, we have Rainsford Stauffer, an author and journalist. She's the work in progress columnist for Teen Vogue and wrote a column for Catapult Gold Stars. Her latest book is All the Gold Stars, Reimagining Ambition and the Ways We Strive. Hello. Hello. What an introduction. Thank you. (laughs) I like to announce it like it's a baseball game. I love it. (laughs) Well, we're so excited to talk to you because uh, like we mentioned before we started recording, Gabe and I talk about ambition a lot. Ambition is something that I feel like consumes my life in both good and bad ways. And so what led you to sort of tackling this beast that that is within us, but we like to not talk about? <laughs> First of all, it's always reassuring to hear I'm not the only one that feels mm-hmm. like they're being consumed by this all the time. But that's actually was kind of the starting point of when I started writing about ambition. I started writing about ambition mostly for myself. I did not think anyone would ever want to read my thoughts on ambition. And what prompted that is feeling like I was losing it. I'd always thought of ambition as like my saving grace, the thing that kind of held me together, the thing that allowed me to like bargain my way into some sort of self-worth or security or all of these things that I wanted to have and didn't feel. And in retrospect, I wanted to feel good enough And I thought ambition was going to be the thing that got me there. So I kind of had one of those moments in life where everything just kind of falls down around you at one time. There was a lot of really heavy personal life stuff happening. My physical and mental health were getting a lot worse. And I found myself in the middle of this ambition crisis. And because ambition was so much a part of my personality, it also felt like an identity crisis. And it really was not until I started interviewing people and kind of digging into some of the research that exists around ambition that I realized, hey, we're given this social script of achievement and timelines on which we're supposed to be achieving things. Ambition is something that is so reinforced by so many different structures and so many different like institutional forces. And that's what got me thinking, maybe there's enough here to be a book. This is something I really want to dive into. What's your history with it? Were you like an overachieving kid or like, what's the, I keep, I'm like, is it middle child energy? Like, what's the deal? It's oldest child energy. Okay. Okay. Number one. But I would describe myself as a kid who had overachieving energy and none of the results to really back that up. Like I wanted to be the teacher's pet. I wanted to be the kid that knew all the answers and I just wasn't. 
So I brought like that level of work and enthusiasm and people pleasing to everything as a kid. But I was not the straight A student. I was not like the gold star winner. I remember my thing when I was young was dancing. That's what I love to do. And I think I was like nine years old when I figured out, okay, I'm not going to be the best one, but I can be the one that gets praised for coming to class early and being the hardest worker. And that triggered something in my little nine-year-old brain that stayed with me well into adulthood. And it still flares up now. It hasn't gone all the way away. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's what's so funny is like to write a book about ambition and how it's like we shouldn't be hyper-focused on ambition. But then I bet you wanted your book to do well. So can you sort of talk about navigating that? Yes. Yeah, because it's it feels like it doesn't go together and it feels a little bit funky. I felt like I was hyper aware of that the entire time I was talking to people about this. I think a couple things helped. Number one, I went into the book thinking this is a book about losing ambition and we don't need to have it anymore and we don't need to be trying so hard to get it back. And as it happens, That's just not what shook out in the reporting at all. Instead, I got to meet these incredible people who were using all of this energy and care and intention or drive, whatever we want to kind of ascribe to ambition, in really interesting ways in their life. And some of them had to do with work or school, but they were equally as ambitious about their friendships or about their communities or their hobbies. And I found that so interesting that I think it kind of jogged something in me where I realized that it was actually more fulfilling to be ambitious about lots of different things and find meaning in lots of different ways than focusing on the outcome of one single thing, no matter how much you care about it. I care so much about this book, but I care because of the people that are in it. And that's the part to me that I really wanted to be ambitious about. So I was ambitious about having the conversations with people more than I was ambitious for writing the book, if that makes sense. How are we defining ambition? Like what in the book, what are you defining ambition as? That's a great question. So there's a couple different ways to answer it. One of the most interesting things about reporting on this is that there really isn't one single definition of ambition because it's so shaped by someone's personal relationship or their circumstances. And like the book's got the dictionary definitions in there. And I don't don't know them off the top of my head, but it's usually related to some deep desire to achieve a certain outcome. Uh, Motivation is a big part of it. But basically, in its simplest form, a desire to achieve a specific outcome or goal. And I think that that still holds true throughout the book. People felt a lot of motivation and a lot of desire to do a lot of things. It just was so much broader and deeper than the traditional, here's the checklist of accomplishments that I'm supposed to be striving for, Here's the list of ways I'm going to feel bad about myself when I've fallen short of those. And I think my big takeaway was kind of expanding what the definition of ambition is supposed to be and what we can be ambitious about. You wrote a wonderful essay in The Cut about like your relationship between your OCD and ambition. Can you sort of explain a bit how OCD can can really latch on to being ambitious and why that's not always super helpful? (laughs) 
I think one of the ways it's not super helpful is it's one that people were really into reinforcing whether they knew it or not. So for Mm. me, one of the ways that OCD looked for me, if you were like looking at it from the outside and didn't know it was OCD, it looked like saying yes to an obsessive amount of work projects, constantly going from one thing to another thing, turning them in on time, seemingly doing really well at that and really outwardly enjoying it. And the further I got into treating the OCD and kind of unraveling my relationship to that, I was really seeking a sense of security and safety through doing all of these little work tasks. And ironically, it was not until the OCD started impacting my work that I was like, wait a second, something's not right here. Because on the outside, I was an overworking perfectionist. And those were two qualities that people really used to praise me for, honestly. And that got me even further in my head thinking, there's no way this is a problem. This is the only thing about me that's good. Mm. These other people appreciate it. They appreciate the perfectionism. This couldn't be a bad thing. And then meanwhile, cut to behind the scenes, I've literally gone hoarse because I've read a three-line email out loud to myself for the past hour and a half and feel like I can't physically get myself up out of the chair to walk away or I'm obsessing over something I said in an interview because I'm convinced I've said something really terrible right in the middle of it and I'm pulling my hair out while that happens. So I think that the line between what I thought of as my ambition, as this overwork, as this perfectionism, and what was actually just a cycle of obsessive obsessions and compulsions got really blurry for a minute. And I think that the most surprising part about that to me that I never would have guessed is that actually treating the OCD made me a more ambitious person because it gave me a lot of my time and my identity back. Oh, that's so interesting. Yeah. Can you say more about that? I'm so curious because I feel like people, people do praise like, oh, the perfection. I mean, this is like something that you deal with. Well, it was so funny because one time my, my OCD therapist like tried to imply I was a perfectionist and I was like, I'm not a perfectionist. Like I submit stuff all the time that I know is not great. And like, I just like, will like be like, I'm done and like, whatever. And she's like, yeah, but maybe your form of perfectionism is that you have to finish everything. Yes. And I was like, <gasps> oh no. <laughs> <laughs> that was a game changer for me. Like, right. Like, yeah, I don't think it's my best work, but when have I ever missed a deadline? Right. I feel very seen yeah. by that. <laughs> Because I think that, and that kind of goes back to like, in retrospect, I definitely had this since I was a kid. Mm -hmm. And I think people knew that I was a little bit anxious, that I liked things to kind of go a certain way. I liked knowing what was going to happen next. But I don't think because that was just not a conversation that was happening in my school or in my community at the time. No one figured this out until I was an adult, myself included. But I think that it's funny because when we hear perfectionism or we hear ambitious or high achiever or any of these things, we do think of the person that like can't stand to get anything wrong. It has to be done perfect every time. And that was never really my thing. Like I fail a lot. I have always failed a lot and was usually pretty good about being like, well, that hurt my feelings. (laughs) That didn't go great. But like, I'm just going to turn around and try again. Where that got a little bit dicey is that the trying again became so much a part of how I saw myself and the way I moved through the world and where all my self-worth was sitting 
that I kind of miss the memo where it's like sometimes you can stop trying and you don't have to try this hard at everything to this degree all the time. And not only should you not, you can't anymore because your brain and your body are giving out on you. And so I think that when I realized, okay, this is not just being an overly ambitious person. This is not how ambition is supposed to feel and realized what was sitting underneath that part of it. All of a sudden, I felt like I had the ability to at least cope more with uncertainty or with what I perceived as lack of safety. I felt like I had the ability to see beyond whatever thought was sitting right in the front of my mind, like looking me in the eyes to something else. And all of a sudden, that gave me the ability to want things again, because I think that for a long time, I was doing all this stuff and it it mattered a lot. But I had a hard time giving myself permission to want anything or to feel like I deserved anything because I was second guessing everything that came out of my mouth. And sometimes like, did I did I do that thing or did I lie? And I said that I did. Did I actually (laughs) turn that in? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. Oh, my God. You're really blowing up my spot here. Yeah. How many day, times a day do I go? I might have made that up. I yeah. don't know, yeah. I don't know that, if that happened. All day. <laughs> all day long. My, my poor fact checker, because <laughs> I just went back and back and back. I really tried to like use some coping skills and not do that. But fact checking was a big, a big test for me this time of can we acknowledge that the fact has been checked oh, <laughs> and God. not tell ourselves. But did you make that up? Are you sure? Should you check again? How are you? How do you know that you're sure? Oh, God. Because I just also have a terrible memory. So it's like that combined with the OCD. It's like, I don't even know my own name, kind of. Oh, my God. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's also like this interesting thing, right? Because one of my best closest friends also has OCD and has had it since she was about eight. And I've had it since I was four. Mm -hmm. But ours manifests so differently. And so, you know, and for her, it's really hard to start things. It's really hard to Mm -hmm. do things because her OCD kind of gets in her way. Whereas I feel like my OCD would make me like the energizer bunny. And I had to do everything. And and for a long time, I was like, oh, well, at least I got the better kind. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? But it's like, did I like or is it yeah. all just so draining? Did you sort of used to think that it was this kind of superpower that would propel you to, to do so much only to realize how it was harming you? Honestly, I thought that before I knew it was OCD. Mm-hmm. I was very attached to the idea of like, this is striving. This is perfectionism. This is ambition. And this is how it's supposed to feel. And I think it happened. So the first time I got diagnosed with this, which is very typical, it turns out, although I didn't know it at the time, I didn't believe that I had it. Yeah. Because I, still I don't was believe like, I have it. I'm, a, yeah. I'm an OCD advocate. Literally. And every day every, I'm like, I don't have OCD. <laughs> every, every once a week she goes, I don't have OCD. <laughs> I'm like, what are you talking about? Because it's true. Literally every time I'm like, I remember hearing that and on paper thinking, oh, that makes a weird amount of sense. But being like, no, you've lied about how bad this is. And you can't trust yourself to know if you have this or not. So you don't. So there was a big gap between being told this information for the first time and having to go on this very interesting discovery path to confirm like, oh, something is actually wrong here. 
Now I feel like mine in the past couple years has fluctuated back and forth between being the energizer bunny that's ready for everything. I have a five-step plan for myself, probably for whoever is with me as well, several contingency plans for that, and feeling like I am so stuck that I cannot get started on something. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that's the part that manifests a little bit more personally, a little bit more privately, is the, are the days where I feel like I can't leave the apartment because I don't know what's going to happen and how am I going to prepare for whatever whatever happens out there. I don't even know what I'm preparing for. Mm-hmm. But preparation is a very big thing for me. So it's kind of interesting to see not only how differently it shows up for people, but also sometimes how differently it shows up in myself when I'm paying attention. Yeah. And I mean, it's interesting because I, I think that one of the ways to feel satisfied and fulfilled in your life is to have purpose, which is sort of connected to ambition. Yep. But but how do you walk that line where it's not all consuming and where if you don't accomplish your goal, you don't hate yourself or feel like a failure? I think this is such a good question because I hear all the time now, well, but I want to have goals. I want to do things. It's like, of course you do. We all do, whether we would call them goals or not. But one of the most interesting things that kind of blew my mind when I was researching this is that the tipping point for ambition is when it manages to eclipse all other needs. Mm. When uh, our drive, our motivation, our ambition for a certain outcome, whatever we want to call it, kind of overshadows our need for rest, our need for community and a sense of belonging, our need to take care of ourselves. When it becomes the only thing on which your self-worth or your meaning or your time is contingent, that's where it tends to dip into that too much territory that can be really damaging. Mm -hmm. And I think also it can kind of turn into, let me make sure I can say this right. I think that that kind of ambition, when it dips into that territory where it has taken over everything else, when it does feel like the only good thing about you, I think it can kind of undercut itself and make yourself feel a little bit less ambitious, ironically, Mm -hmm. because when you are working so hard to prove yourself over and over and over again, and you come up against a world that's really hard to live in anyway, where we are all inevitably going to fail at something at some point or another in some way, it makes it really difficult to cope with that. And it makes it really challenging to step back and say, well, that didn't go the way I wanted, but I'm still ambitious about it. Mm -hmm. I might have to be ambitious in a different way. I might have to use this in a different way, but me failing at this thing or this thing not turning out how I thought doesn't take away that ambition or that sense of purpose that I've got. We just so romanticize it in society. Like I just think about myself, I would go, well, we only have one life and I want to be special. This was my way of thinking for a long time. Mm-hmm. And like, you know, I the documentary where Lady Gaga's in a bath of ice because she's been on tour for so long or like this person, you know, gave gave away everything to become so famous and, you know, become so successful. And it's like, yeah, they used their one life correctly. You know what I mean? Like, that's what I would always think. And then, of course, a lot of those people die very young. But then I'm like, but then they're canonized. They died in their you know, Jim Morrison is is known forever. And like, it's this really like sick way of thinking that I still like have in my mind. I'm still like, well, you got to you got to leave some sort of mark. You got to do something. 
because you'll be special. And it really also made me in the past, it made me really judgmental of people who Mm -hmm. just kind of wanted to vibe. (laughs) (laughs) I honestly, I think this is such a good point because it is so held up as the most important thing you will do in your life is actually how you are remembered after your life is over. And when you think about it, like that's wonderful. I'm sure we all have a legacy that we want to leave, if only for the people that know us and love us while we are here. But it's really stressful Mm -hmm. because I think that because of a whole convergence of things, because of capitalism, because of lack of a social safety net, because of our norms around what a successful or ambitious person is supposed to look Mm -hmm. like, it really does become uh, this sensation that if you haven't self-sacrificed, if you haven't given it everything you've got every time, if you haven't fulfilled whatever purpose you've decided you're supposed to have, that your life is meaningless. Yeah. And I think the self-sacrifice element of it is such a big one because we expect people to do that all the time in this country. We are in a scenario where for so many people, it's supposed to be a reasonable ask Mm -hmm. that you're supposed to sacrifice your body, your well-being, your time, everything to make enough money to afford housing. Mm -hmm. Even that part of it, it just... And I think that we don't think about that as ambition, but I think that ambition from what I've seen, it kind of like there's two constructs of it. You're supposed to be ambitious enough to kind of outwork your circumstances and your individual achievement should be enough to get over all of these structural barriers. Right. And then there's the other version of it where it's like if you haven't been ambitious in these certain ways and usually if you haven't done it all by a certain age, are you really ambitious at all? Are you sure you did your best? I mean, like, do you deserve housing? Do you deserve? Yeah. We just did a, an interview on my other show, Bad With Money, with uh, um, Manisha at the core. And she was talking about she did like this book, Money's End. And she was talking about like, equaling like your net worth, equaling your self-worth and that kind of dovetailing with, oh, well, you do you deserve social safety nets? Like, oh, well, you know, we can't have welfare because these people aren't ambitious and they're not getting jobs. And, you know, they don't deserve health care because they did it to themselves or this sort of thing of like what you said, getting out of your circumstances, the athlete who leaves the the hood or the ballerina who's bleeding for so that she can be the prima ballerina and like you know, all of these things that I think are going to become like really sick in the future. You see it now with like kids on TikTok, like the kid has to do all this stuff and the parents are like, this is our income and the kid better be making four or five TikToks a day, baby. It's getting this thing where you're like, I'm getting out of my circumstances and I'm getting really rich, but not just getting rich, getting praise and getting the political like people on your side to give you basic housing, basic like basic, uh, you know, minimum wage, like things like that. I think you're exactly right that so much, so much of all of this, including so much of what and who we think of as ambitious maps onto these really profoundly broken ideas of deservedness, Mm -hmm. like the who deserves to get something. I thought about this a lot when I was interviewing people, um, both current high school students and older people that I was asking to like look back and reflect on how formative that time of their lives, you know, were in ways good and bad. But one of the things that came up over and over again was 
well, I didn't deserve to be in the gifted and talented right. program. I didn't deserve to be this person. And like, if we really get into what that means, it's who deserves to have resources and support and who Correct. doesn't. It just, it's despicable. It shows up in everything. I also think I talk to a lot of young people, including for this book, and I think that they are so aware of it, so much younger than I remember being aware of it. And I think that that just sets you up for a lifetime of trying to prove that you have worth in a world that is very quick to tell you all the ways that you don't. Oh, in middle school, they split all of us up into A, B, C, D classes, literally. And then they tried to pretend that it wasn't like in order. So they would put like, this, you know, you knew if you were in the C classes that you were the gifted kids. And then I had like a very close friend who was put in the like B classes that were clearly everyone sort of figured out were for the dumb quote unquote kids. And that's like, how are we supposed to as friends like deal with that? Like, how are we? So then what motivation does that girl have to like do well? Like it was so looking back on how they did that. It was I mean, we were 11. We're going to take a quick break, but stick around. And we're back. Something I think about a lot is what it means to have your ambition change and how Mm -hmm. that can feel like a betrayal of self. You know, Gabe and I being in in Hollywood and having had like very specific dreams, like I know for myself, like all I've ever wanted is to have a TV show. Like mm-hmm. I went to school for screenwriting. I wanted to like and I came so close to having a TV show I, I created and starred in. And now like my career has moved away from TV and I'm on camera less and we don't record sketches anymore and I'm not acting and I'm not performing live comedy and I'm not doing all these things that even though I want to note that she is extremely successful in another area that we have yet to announce no but (laughs) that's what I'm saying is like my career is is no longer the thing I my career has shifted in a lot of ways and it's interesting because part of me is like well but should I keep striving for my first goal like should I keep striving in this area that like seems to not be the focus, seems to not be where the success is, seems to not like, and is it a betrayal of self, you know, for an actress to audition for 20 years and finally one day say, this isn't going to happen for me. Let me go do something else with my life. Like, I think we set it up where if like you ever let go of your dreams, you're letting yourself down, but like, can dreams change? Can ambition move to a different area? I also think broadening it. So for me, like, Uh, similarly, like I'm a writer and I've always tried to keep everything very broad so that if I like, well, if I don't have this particular thing, I'm still a writer. I'm still writing. So like keeping it less so, I mean, it's interesting because they tell you to have these goals that are like, and by this year you'll have this. And by this year you'll have this, you know? And I'm like, maybe the, maybe my advice, maybe the idea, and I don't know if that's what you were going to say, Rainsford, is like to just keep it a little broader. (laughs) I love both of these things. I think, yeah, it can change. And I think sometimes it can be awesome when it does. And I totally agree on keeping it broad. And I think that that can be helpful because I kind of had the reverse experience where (laughs) I think in a way I realized my ambition or my goals were going to change a lot earlier than maybe some of my peers or colleagues. I was going to be a dancer. That's what I spent my entire childhood and young adulthood working toward. And basically, 
I not only got injured, but it was clear that a chronic illness that I'd had since I was a kid was really showing up in that like teenage young adult time of life in a way that I had no idea how to control and was totally incompatible with taking classes every day, with being on stage. It just wasn't going to work. And so I think that I had the grief of realizing that was going to look different in my late teens and early 20s. And I spent so long chasing it anyway. Like, how do I get back in shape to do this? How can I get there? How can I kind of go back and reclaim this thing? And I understand why I did that, but I also feel like I probably missed so much that I could have been interested in along the way. Like I knew I loved writing, but I had no idea what that looked like until I got into that late teens, early 20s thing where it was like, oh, I was so distracted by trying to hang on to this goal that no longer felt like it was working for me that I was missing all the ones in between. And I think it's a fine line because I'm of the opinion that if you're ambitious about something in a way where that thing holds meaning to you, it's got some personal resonance. It's not just about kind of checking like an achievement off the checklist and moving on to the next thing. I think it's worth keeping those around and seeing how they come back around in different ways. And maybe it doesn't quite look the way we thought it would, but it turns out that it's the same goal that shows up in a different form. And one of the things I loved about reporting this book is I got to talk to people of so many different ages and so many different circumstances. And I loved hearing how their ambition changed. Because I think a lot of the time the narrative is just you either have it or you don't. If you don't Mm -hmm. use it, it's going to go away. If you haven't, you know, stayed on track and finished this out, you're a quitter. And I loved hearing that for some people, quitting certain goals was the most ambitious thing they ever did. And for others, it really was this idea that like you're passionate about this thing. It matters to you. And all of a sudden you give yourself some space and it shows up in your life in a totally different way than you would have predicted before. I would hope that at least now at this age to for me to feel like if you focus so much on one thing and what you don't have, you're going to miss all the stuff that you do have. You're going to be like, well, just because I don't have this one thing doesn't mean uh, it means that everything else that's working out. I'm not even paying like happy about that or paying attention to what's working out or like, you know, someone you mentioned like an actress, right? Like this actress who's like, God, I'm not getting the parts. But then on the side, this is a friend of mine I'm thinking of, on the side has Mm -hmm. started a really amazing acting class that she's like really made a huge difference in a lot of queer people's lives by doing this like queer acting class. And like- Teaching it, you mean? Teaching it, yeah. And like if, and like starting an acting class specifically for like trans people. And like, if she's not getting the roles, but then, you know, for her, it's like, yeah, but maybe not that you are meant to do, but you know what I mean? Like you have to enjoy the fact that like, wow, like this is really taking off. You know, like maybe you're not going to be on TV every week, but look what you've created. And I think like if you are just like, wow, I'm a failure because I'm not getting these parts, you're going to miss what what is actually happening for you. Totally. And I think that I think it's that way by design. Right. Like, I think not to bring everything back to capitalism, although, (laughs) although, you know, (laughs) that yeah, that's a lot of it. I, I think that when we're on the conveyor belt from the time we're really, really little, I think that a lot of us are wired to be next test, next grade, next thing. What am I doing next? What's the plan? I'm graduating high school. Am I going to college? What does that look like? What do you want to be when you grow up from when you're six? Start so early. 
And more and more, there's framing around that conversation that like thinks that little kids aren't being practical enough in answering that question, which I don't even know where to start with that. But I think that when we are so wired to always be looking ahead, that can go one of two ways. It can be really aspirational. You can be thinking, I can't wait for this next phase of my life. I'm so excited for what it'll bring. Or it can put us in a spot where we're totally missing that there are great things about who we are right now and that there are things that we have probably stumbled our way into or worked our way into that five years ago we had no idea about or didn't even think were possible. And I've, I've caught myself doing that over and over and over again where it's like you're missing the moment you're in and not to sound super cliche or super sappy, but you're missing the only moment you are guaranteed, which is this one. You can have goals and you can have things that you aspire to and want to see happen in your life and also pause and kind of pat yourself on the back for thinking, well, I made it this far <laughs> and that's good enough for today. Wow. Speaking of, of claiming the moment, I'd love to make you play a game show. <laughs> Let's do it. <laughs> hypotheticals is a game where you, a game are my contestants. I can ask you a series of hypothetical situations. You can ask any clarifying questions you might have. And then you tell me what you would do in that situation. And sometimes I pick a winner, but maybe today I won't. Maybe hey. today it's just the joy of playing the game. No gold stars for anyone. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so our first game is America's favorite game show. I took a poll by far their favorite. Would you stay with this cheater? A slight interruption. If you want, would you stay with this cheater merch? You can go to justbetweenuspod.com and there is merch for all of these hypotheticals. You can also go to alisonraskinexposed.com, which leads to justbetweenuspod.com. <laughs> <laughs> but we did make alisonraskinexposed.com and you can go there for our merch. <laughs> and maybe over time, some secrets. That's true. <laughs> oh, also, if you want international shipping, you can go to internationalquestion.com. I love it. <laughs> Great work. Way to really just be in the moment and not thinking about business. <laughs> Sorry, I always I'm always thinking about business. Okay. Also because AllisonRaskinExposed.com is the funniest thing that John's ever come up with. <laughs> okay. Your partner of 62 years reveals that 47 years ago they had a chaotic three-night stand with your couples therapist while what? you were out of town. You both kept seeing that therapist for another three months before the therapist, quote, moved away. Would you stay with this cheater? 62 years ago? No, you've been together 62 years. This was 47 years ago. How did I find out? Uh, they, they, <laughs> they finally broke down one night after having had really bad diarrhea and you cared for them. And then they just told you because they, they, the guilt had been too much and you had been so kind. <sighs> love the circumstances happening around all this. I'm trying to do the mental math of if we've been together 62 years, how old am I? You're in your 80s. Yeah. <laughs> I'll leave. You'll leave? Really? Yeah, I'll leave. Is what Did we have a prenup? Um, no. Oh. No, and they, are, weren't, they weren't that fashionable 62 years ago. That's true. And are they, are, who's rich? One of us? Neither of you. That's a bummer. Yeah, no, I'm leaving. You know what? Because I'm going to leave and I'm going to focus on me. Okay. I'm going to yeah. go. I'm going to like go to Italy. I'm going to like get some like I feel like it's like now in the in your 80s. It's like let's have the last few years for to really focus on me. 
I, yeah, I got it. First of all, Gabe is asking way better follow up questions than I did as I tried to do math. Well, I play in my this head. every week. <laughs> no, I'm I'm leaving. I'm leaving number one because I would be grossed out by all of the years that I spent trusting someone who was lying to me that whole yeah. time. And yeah, I think by the time you're in your 80s, I think you've got to do all the stuff that you wanted to do before. And I'm not sure I would want to do that with someone that had lied by omission for that long. Go to Greece, have a torrid affair. (laughs) You know, who's who's the... Probably have better shot in Florida. A lot of retirement homes. Who's the couple's therapist? Where did she go? Yeah, what happened to them? Well, she just like realized that it was so unethical and she didn't want to get caught (laughs) that she'd had sex with her client. So after three months, they... She was like, oh, I'm leaving. I can't be your therapist anymore. Is she dead? Yeah, she died. <laughs> From what? I'm a construction accident. Oh, <laughs> something just fell on her? Well, her house was being renovated and a, and a ceiling collapsed. Okay, that's karma. <laughs> yeah. It took her three months to have the realization that that was unethical. <laughs> right. I have some questions about that. Well, she thought that if she if she bailed right away that you would become suspicious. I wouldn't have. Okay. Well, I really wouldn't have. She wasn't a good therapist. She didn't know you very well. (laughs) I've had some really bad couples therapists, to be honest. Really? My couples therapist was unbelievable. Phenomenal. Really? Joan Sloan. Joan Sloan. (laughs) That's really her name. Well, no, his name is John Sloan. I thought his his name was Joan. Oh, yeah. Where's our? Okay, yeah. Al, there's a whole thing where Allison thought that her therapist was a man named Joan Sloan, only to realize she'd been reading it wrong and his name is John Sloan. <laughs> if it's Joan Sloan, I give it a pass. Yeah. And he's, I haven't, I don't know if I told you, Joan Sloan is very good looking. We got it. Does he know that we call him Joan Sloan on this podcast? I think so. Would you be mad if you found out that I like searched for and was hooking up with your couples therapist? Oh, yeah. I wouldn't be mad if you went and saw him. I've recommended him to many people. But if you were hooking up with my married couples therapist, yeah. Oh, he's married? Yeah. You don't know if he's open. He doesn't share that in couples therapy. That's true. Joan Sloan. (laughs) Okay, I'm leaving. And I'm leaving to go to to, um, Naples with Joan Sloan. I don't I don't think you guys would vibe, but who who do I know? You thought I wouldn't vibe with a lot of people I did vibe with. I know. It's but then I almost feel like it's because I said you wouldn't vibe with them that you went after them with such tenacity that you wore them down. <laughs> yeah, m- most of my romantic encounters are to prove Allison wrong. <laughs> That's ambition, baby. Okay. Our next game. Are you a terrible parent? Your child 12 spends their hard-earned allowance on a custom-made bedazzled shirt that says, fuck the man, (laughs) and insists on wearing it to school on their birthday. (laughs) Incredible. You let them, and they get suspended and also have to do 25 hours of community service. Are you a terrible parent? Community service isn't bad. I did community service. I mean, it wasn't, I just, I guess it was volunteering. Right. But I- like as a kid, like I wasn't doing like community, I guess community services, like when my sister got a DUI and had to court order do it. But I, but I guess I guess volunteering is just volunteering. But I I think it's I think I would have to say to her, they're going to make you turn your shirt inside out, at least at the very yeah. least. I know they make kids do that. I had school uniforms, but I know that if like a kid 
you know, at my if a, if in public school a kid comes in with a shirt that has like Hooters logo on it or something, they make them turn it inside out. I feel like I'm a bad parent because I let her go to school with it to begin with. But she, I could be like, I would be like, let's have like a roller rink party and you can wear it there. I mean, my first thought was if I can get a matching shirt. So <laughs> obviously I think that that, for the roller rink party. For the roller rink party. So I think that puts me in the terrible parent category. I wouldn't say no. I would have the yeah. conversation where it's like, this is probably what's going to happen if you wear it to school. Maybe we could come up with like a different occasion for this spectacular shirt. But I don't think I'd say no. Yeah. Well, because I honestly think that kids clothes should be policed way less than they are. Oh, I know. School. I was going to say, I hope that I'm not at a school where they would do that, you know, yeah. but maybe I may. Well, this is my whole thing. I'm not having kids, but I would homeschool. But yeah, I think like, you know, there's Allison hates it. But I think like that, I hope that I wouldn't have them out of school where it would matter. Yeah, I think if anything, you're kind of reinforcing their belief system that it is fuck the man. It is fuck the man. You know? Who knows? This could really lead them on a journey to take a down the establishment. So maybe you're a great parent. <laughs> when I was six, when I got my driver's license, I had to carpool these like girls home from school all the time. And one of them was, I think, probably in like elementary school. And she said, so I was like 16 and she said something about something a teacher did. And I said, yeah, that's fascism. And then the mom called me later and was like, uh, so Melanie told her teacher that she was a fascist. <laughs> I support this. <laughs> and I was like, oops. <laughs> you got to think long term, not short term with what you're teaching your kid. <laughs> well, was the teacher being a fascist? <laughs> OK, our final game is actually inspired by a listener's true story. Wow. They they sent in what's been going on with them and I condensed it down to, to fit the game show. OK, amazing. So here we go. It's an is this a date? Your coworker asks you to dinner with their friend group pretty last minute. Mm. You arrive at the hard to get into fancy restaurant and realize that everyone else in the group is a couple <gasps> other than you and your coworker. Ooh. Is this a date? Oh my God. This happened to somebody. <laughs> okay. Wow. Okay. Are you guys both the genders that each other are attracted to? Yes. Are you both single? Yes. What sort Ooh. of job do you work at? You work at a cat cafe. Okay. So it's not like, oh, a it's not like an office. Well, no, you work in corporate of a cat cafe. Oh, there's corporate? <laughs> yeah. There's corporate cat cafe corporate? Someone yes. has to organize the cats. Exactly. They're trying to expand and franchise. Yeah. Cat cafe corporate. Yes. That's where I want to work. Right? Wow. Probably a lot of poop everywhere. But I was going to say, I just found a new job for Al, for my boyfriend. Okay. So, uh, well, it's fancy restaurant. That's interesting. Did you know it was fancy? Because you dressed up. So you must have known. Uh, yes. Okay, interesting. And that's okay. That's a bold first date to meet that all really the bold. friends. I wonder if this person feels really self-conscious that he's the only one in this group that doesn't have a partner. And so maybe because he feels self-conscious, he's like wants someone to fill that slot pretty immediately. That's not answering the question of the game at all. I think it is a date. I okay. think it is a date. Sorry. I think it is a date. I... I need to caveat my answer with I have been on dates that I definitely did not know were dates until well after they were over. So I'm not the most qualified to weigh in here. I think it is a date. I think it's a bad date. Oh, interesting. I guess depending on the relationship with the coworker, like, are you all friends at work? Do they know each sure. other at all? Well, in real life, this person had a flirtationship with the coworker. Oh, oh it's a date. 
So okay, it's I a think date that for that. sure. It's an absolutely unhinged first date. <laughs> like you have like, to be ready for this person to be fully unhinged. <laughs> I kind of admire how nuts that is. I mean, it could be fun. Are the cats there? Did they bring? No, they're any at cats? a fancy restaurant. They're at a fancy, they're restaurant. At a fancy restaurant. Yeah. Okay. The cats are the waiters. <laughs> Well, that's Absolutely. what Cat Cafe Corporate's working on. <laughs> um, I think this is uh, like I kind of I have bad instincts where like red flags are fun to me. So I'm like, wow, this is so this is so nuts. I'm sort of into it. <laughs> I think it could be nice. Like I th- if they already know each other and it's not, you know, we've met online and this is our first right, encounter. Right. I do think it's a date. Not sure how good a date I think it is. That's where I'm stuck. But yeah, I think it was a date. It could be a cool way to see if you get along with their friend group. I would say it's a good idea if it's like we're all going to a casual bar hang. No, this was a very fancy yeah, restaurant. Yeah, fancy dinner is really <laughs> difficult. It, is he paying for you? No. Hmm. <gasps> oh, really? So everybody's splitting the check? Uh, Yeah. We should do oh. like on I think you should is it I think you should leave where no it's maybe it's John Early where they they go oh yeah let's do credit no, card that's roulette I think you should leave but it was John Early it was John Early <laughs> well and then they do credit card roulette and then they pick his credit card no that's terrible I would have a panic attack um, <laughs> oh my gosh thank you so much for joining us where can people follow you and read your books oh my gosh you can get all the gold stars from wherever you buy books you can follow me at Rainsford on Twitter and the Twitter alternatives and Rainsford underscore Stoffer on Instagram where I coincidentally post a lot of cat photos love it thank you (laughs) stick around after the break we'll be talking all about parasocial relationships oh my Back to just between us. It's time for topics. X X X X X X baby baby bambino. Oh, that's very cute. Is that Italian for baby? Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> hey Siri, what does bambino mean? Oh, a baby or a young child? I knew what it meant. In Italian, that's why I said it. <laughs> okay, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. They call Babe Ruth the the great, great bambino. bambino. Mm-hmm. That's what I call my mom. Because <laughs> she's Ruth. Whoa. <laughs> Do you ever call her baby Ruth? No, but she hates Ruthie. Like some really? random people will call her Ruthie and she like, it, it, like hardens her heart. She hates it so much. Weird. She's yeah. never liked her name. I feel bad. Anyway, I thought this week would be a great time to talk about parasocial relationships and our experience with them other people's experience with them Mm. and how they can go so, so very wrong. Sure. Well, this was, uh, uh, came up in the wake of the Colleen Ballinger situation. Yes. For which, if you don't know, Colleen did, um, Miranda Singh's character on YouTube, very popular with, uh, young people. And then some of those young people came out and spoke about how she was very inappropriate with them. And then she did a ukulele apology video, <laughs> which made everything worse. She denied everything. Ish. I mean, it was. It's interesting because it was like it was like both like these aren't things are not true, but also if I did do them, they weren't that bad. Uh-huh. And it was like if I'm not correct, then you know 
you can have two for two today. But uh, <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> I don't think I could handle the thrill. <laughs> she was saying that what people were experiencing were parasocial relationships. But once you cross the line and actually like yeah. have interactions, it's no longer parasocial. Right. Oh, mm. that's interesting. Right. Like if you're yeah. regularly communicating with uh-huh. people, then it's like a real relationship. A relationship. Right. Yeah. That makes sense. Whenever these YouTubers get like taken down by a scandal, it's always like, oh, let me go back and think about us on YouTube. Right. Because it's like, yeah, I'm always like, oh, like what, you know, did we behave well? Like, did we handle this correctly? Like, you know, and I, I thought back to like, do you remember like one time I feel like when we did that, that ad video in the park? Um, and then like, I feel like some dad was like, my daughter would like love to intern for you for free. Do you remember right. that? And I remember at the time being like, I'm not going to like do no, unpaid no child labor. Yeah. Like, I was like, I think we were like in our mid 20s. But I even then was like, that doesn't seem right. Yeah, <laughs> I think back. Like, I try to have empathy. Like, I'm like, okay, maybe like, I don't know, you get famous and then this, this and this. Because we made a ton of mistakes for sure. But we never, I never did anything close to, like, we never communicated. We always had these boundaries. Like, we never, like, communicated with people like that. Like, we never, like, I try to be like, well, I don't know, maybe it would have been easy to get caught up in that. But I, I simply did not. Like, Like, I I never, I never thought, I never, like, turned to the fan base to provide help for me. If that makes sense. Like, it was like. I was it was so awesome to see that, like talking about like mental health and talking about like sexuality and all those things seem to be resonating with people. And it was always so lovely to like and to this day to get messages about like how I've helped people or like how we've made people think about things differently. And I will write back because I'm so grateful. And that actually like really does fuel like why we do this. Yeah. But like writing back thank you so much is where it ends. Mm -hmm. Like it's not it's not then like trying to engage more with it because Mm -hmm. it is this weird thing of like you know so much about me Mm -hmm. but like you're a stranger I don't know you you know I've also had fans speaking as someone who's like very open sexually like I have had fans make overtures towards me and I shut it down immediately oh you do Mm -hmm. or I don't respond or like I'll respond to other things but not that like it just wouldn't occur to me to encourage that or like engage with that I I don't see how that would be fulfilling, but I guess it's like I'm not these other people. So what do I know? But it's like that thing, right, where you see like someone way older, like dating someone who's 20 and you're like, I I don't know how they do it at that. But like, I don't know. They have a different psychology or whatever. So well, it's just it's taking advantage of an inherent power dynamic. Right. Like, right. Like it's like if somebody is like your fan like any kind of relationship you have with them starts off in a different way than than regular Mm -hmm. relationship. Right. Absolutely. And I've had fans like, you know, there was like a a fan who came to a book signing of mine and then a bunch of my friends went out to dinner and she came with us. But like I wasn't and she likes talking to my friends and stuff, but it wasn't like then I went and had a private relationship. Like it's not like Mm -hmm. I guess it's it comes from feeling insecure and so needing these relationships to be ones where you have the power Mm. I don't really know I mean I dated a guy who was famous who like would troll for you know girls on Twitter who were younger and who were fans of his 
that's how like he met me was because I had written something about favorable about him. Mm-hmm. And, and I would never understand. I think like partially when I spoke to him about it, part of it was, well, this is how I meet people. Oh, really? Yeah. Like it was sort of like, well, how how else would I meet people as a, a famous person? And I'm like, what? Well, Melissa, you've worked with so many YouTubers over mm-hmm. the years. Like, what do you think is like the right way to handle the parasocial relationship? So I've worked with a lot of YouTubers. And then like once I got like become like a co-host of my podcast. So I've seen both sides of it from like a producer side and then also like becoming the The talent yeah talent and so like sometimes people will reach out to me a lot for like career advice and I'm happy to give that yeah but then there are other people that it goes (laughs) too far and I can tell that they want something that is not something that I am willing to give and it's just weird I don't I don't understand how people become so ingrained like they think that you they know you like I just don't understand that I understand it I understand it but I just as the talent I don't understand people who message me or like and I like it's nice but like you know someone recently was like I'd love to grab a coffee and I didn't realize and I was going back through the messages like do we know each other like wait I is this someone that I met that I forgot no but this, the talking was like as if we knew each other. Yeah. When I say I don't understand because like I guess because I see on both like some people, they don't share a lot like of who they are. And I'm like, you are into somebody that that's not their whole, the whole person. You're projecting. And so you think that, you know, somebody just based on the information that they're putting out when it goes from like just being entertainment to mm you thinking that you have a friendship with this person and they've never really talked to you. Mm -hmm. I'm like, why do you feel like you are entitled to that? Well, then it becomes, you're not doing what I want you to do. Yes. That, that is what I've with the parasocial relationships, what I've dealt with where people are like, I'm disappointed in you. Mm -hmm. I'm like, you don't what disappointed in me. Right. You don't know me. (laughs) I guess I just like, when I think about the energy, it's like, I think about like the creator's, Give give themselves to the audience. Yes. But I think it is weird when the creators then expect the audience to give themselves that, to the creator. Totally. Mm-hmm. That's where I think things get really wonky and, and not good and an abuse of power. Yeah. But absolutely. it's not parasocial anymore. Once you cross once it's two ways. Mm. Right. But it's start like I think when you start off parasocial and then you expect to get real things from them, mm-hmm. like real like emotional support or like real yeah. like that you can like rely on them yeah. to like feed your ego or to like be a real friend totally. or like that. And then I think that like, that's, that's an abuse of, of power in a lot of ways. I mean, obviously there's exceptions to the rules. Yeah. You mm-hmm. can like, you know, be in a pottery class and someone happens to already know who you are, but then yeah. you happen to form a real friendship yeah. because right. you're in this class together. Right. But I think when it starts like based solely on the internet, then it gets really tricky. Yeah. Or even, um, the times where I've been canceled, I have never reached out to fans to be like, defend me or, 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 oh, I'm so sad. Like I've never, yeah, done that. Like I've never been like, I need something from you, even when I'm like totally fucked, you know? 
And that's not to say I haven't gotten so much. Like when I went through my broken engagement, honestly, the support that I got from like my community was unbelievable. And it actually like did really move me so much. But it it was like it was like an exchange and exchange. It it didn't go further than that. But it's not. But with that, you're not talking to individuals and getting something specific. Well, I would get, like, certain people would send a message, and I would send one message back. Right, right. You know? Like, it's not an ongoing thing. Yeah, it's not. On- I think that's the difference mm-hmm. is, like, when it's ongoing versus, like, yeah. a message here, a reply here, a message yeah. here, a reply here. Where you wouldn't, you wouldn't be like, thank you so much, so here's the details of what happened to me. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Or asking them to, like, go attack someone. Well, I mean, I think that that's an also really interesting thing is, like, I think these bigger celebrities or just different celebrities. Well, that's another thing. I think that these people with with a big fan base, yeah. when their fans then behave in a really negative way and attack people, mm-hmm. I think it is the responsibility of the person to be like, hey, don't do that. Yeah. Yes. Like, yeah. that's not how I want to operate. That's not how I want you to protect me. Mm-hmm. Like, please don't do that. But when they don't, that's what they want. Like, right. they want people to attack. Right. So that's also a thing where those people feel like a parasocial connection to whoever. Mm -hmm. And they're like, I'm going to defend them as if that's my friend. But I'm like, that person doesn't know you. Right. But that's, I think, again, like you abusing the power to like have you like minions go do your dirty work for you. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's so harmful. Mm -hmm. And so speaking of the more current thing that's happening is like the Ariana Grande. I'm obsessed. Ethan, whatever. Slater. Slater's new relationship where it seems like she probably. They both cheated. They both cheated. And I think that's such a tricky thing for certain parasocial fans. Right. Because it's like, how do I defend this or how do I make this so it's not as bad as it seems to be so that I don't feel guilty about supporting this person who's well, maybe behaving badly. She started liking posts that indicated that her ex was like abusive to her. She didn't say anything. She did. She just started liking memes about like abusive relationships, which like is sort of manipulative. Mm. And then people are saying, oh, well, you know, her relationship was over, but like he cheated. And it's like, why are we blaming the it's anti-feminist? Why are we blaming the woman for cheating? It's like, no, 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 no. You know what I mean? But they're like, I get it. Because if you've idolized this person since you were like 14 years old and then they let you down, I get it. You can't blame a child for like, or something that came out of child. You know, I don't know. I guess for us, right? Like if you loved us since you were like 12, I guess I could see being disappointed if one of us, like we did something socially terrible, you know? Well, like if we cheated on a partner or broke up a marriage or something. If we broke up a marriage, God, that would be so juicy though. People would be listening. Yeah, go do that. Well, I don't even, everyone's open. What marriage could I even break up? (laughs) I guess my upcoming one. I was going to say that would be the juiciest of them all. This is what I'm saying. Allison and I have been talking about trying to have a fake feud so that we get more listeners. And it's like, what if it's like, what if it's like John cheated on you with me? Oh, no. Yeah. Because people in that video of us said that we had really good bro chemistry. Oh, my God. Okay. (laughs) What did we rate this episode? Wouldn't that be the twist of the century? Honestly, no, because I feel like you like I feel like it would be more the twist of the century if like I broke up you and Alex. Right. Mm. I would rate this 69 out of 65 maybe just break up. 
I will rate it 69 out of <laughs> 54. No gold stars. Mm. I'll rate it 69 out <laughs> of 50. Stir up some controversy in this podcast. Come we on. really should, right? <laughs> Write in for how we can really both ruin our careers and, you know, ex- uplift, uplift them. Yeah. <laughs> I, I just start shit talking people. Oh, I'm too afraid. <laughs> <laughs> shit talk each other. Yeah. That's our next topic. Yeah. You, you, t- you shit talk each other off the podcast. Oh. And oh. then pretend to be friends on the podcast. <laughs> we did that already. <laughs> But yeah, but that was private. We got to make it. We public. do a whole episode where I'm not here, and it's just Allison airing her complaints, and then we do a whole episode where Allison's not here, and it's me airing my complaints, and we air them together. And then I egg both of you on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh wow. Yeah, you're sort of the Judge Joe Brown of it all. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you so much to Rainsford Stauffer for being our guest. Just Between Us is a Forever Dog production, hosted by me, Allison Raskin, and me, Gabe Dunn, produced by Melissa Diamond Mom. Edited by Coco Lorenz. Executive produced by Brett Boehm, Joe Cilio, and Alex Ramsey. Brendan Burns composed our killer theme music. To listen to this podcast ad-free, sign up for Forever Dog Plus at foreverdogpodcast.com slash plus. And make sure to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Forever Dog Team to keep up with all the latest Forever Dog news. Also, you can follow this podcast at Just Between Us Pod on TikTok and at JBU Podcast on Instagram. Also, I'm on Instagram now at Gabe S. Dunn. And I'm on Instagram and Twitter at Allison Raskin. And on TikTok at, at Allison Raskin Baby. And I'm on TikTok as Dabby Gun. So branding's going really well over here. Yeah, good luck finding us. Forever. <laughs>